Hebrews chapter 3, and I'm going to read the whole chapter. It's only 19 verses, so don't be too fretful. If you don't have a Bible, it's on the screen ahead of us or behind me. Um, And I would ask you to stand as I read. Hear the word of the Lord. Therefore, holy brethren, partakers of a heavenly calling, consider Jesus, the apostle and high priest of our confession. He was faithful to him who appointed him, as Moses also was in all his house. For he has been counted worthy of more glory than Moses, by just so much as the builder of the house has more honor than the house. For every house is built by someone, but the builder of all things is God. Now Moses was faithful in all his house as a servant, for a testimony of those things which were to be spoken later. But Christ was faithful as a son over his house, whose house we are if we hold fast our confession and the boast of our hope firm until the end. Therefore, just as the Holy Spirit says, Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in as when they provoked me, as in the day of trial in the wilderness, where your fathers tried me by testing me and saw my works for 40 years. Therefore, I was angry with this generation and said they always go astray in their heart and they did not know my ways as I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. Take care, brethren, that there not be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart that falls away from the living God, but encourage one another day after day as long as it is still called today, so that none of you will be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. For we have become partakers of Christ if we hold fast the beginning of our assurance firm until the end. While it is said, today if you hear his voice... Do not harden your hearts as when they provoked me. For who provoked him when they had heard? Indeed, did not all those who came out of Egypt led by Moses? And with whom was he angry for forty years? Was it not with those who sinned, whose bodies fell in the wilderness? And to whom did he swear that they would not enter his rest, but to those who were disobedient? So we see that they were not able to enter Because of unbelief. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. God, we thank you that you have chosen to make yourself known to us through your word. And we ask that, Holy Spirit, you would come now and bring your word with power upon our hearts and upon our minds. That you would give us ears to hear and eyes to see. That you would soften our hearts, that they would be pliable as clay in your hands. That we would be fashioned and made as Christ. And Father, I now pray that whatever proceeds from this mouth that is not of you would fall to the floor and remain unheard. For the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God endures forever. Lord Jesus, you said heaven and earth may pass away, but your word will never pass away. So God, help us. Would you speak, Father? Lord of glory, speak. Father, speak. Your children are listening. 
Have mercy in the name of Christ. Amen. You may be seated. I used to be, when I had time, back, back in the day when I had time, uh, I used to be into like backpacking. And I would still go if I had the time. I would still have all my gear. It takes up all these tubs in our attic and in our garage, much to the dismay of my wife um, because she is not a fan of clutter. And I, if you've seen my office, I just, I just live in it and I, I don't know. Uh, anyway, so that's a thing. But anyways, I used to be in the backpacking. And I, there's this trail in North Carolina called the Art Lobe Trail. And if some of you may, if you know trails, it's um, kind of in, it's in the Pisgah National Forest. It's in a wilderness area there. So a wilderness area with the national park, national forests, uh, means that there aren't any trailblazes. There's no markers on the trees that tell you the way to go. You just sort of you have to have your compass out and your map handy so that you know which way is which. And I've been turned around a couple times. And, and every year it seems like there are hikers that have to be res- rescued or sought out because they've lost their way up there. Because it's so close to Asheville, it's very accessible. But there's a, there's a trail that, that the first well, half of it, two-thirds of it, run through this wilderness area. And it's called the Art Lobe Trail. It begins at a scout camp up there near nowhere. I don't know what's up there, Canton. I don't know. Uh, and it runs down near the ranger station near Brevard, North Carolina. And I have started this trail... I want to say three or four times, and I have yet to finish the trail. Uh, I've done halfway, uh, about as far as I've gotten. The first time I did it was in 2002, and I was, I was not yet 20 years old. I was 19, and it was the week of my sister's wedding. And this is it's kind of a story, so just hold on. Uh, and we... It was the week of my sister's wedding, and we planned on two days. It's about a 30 or 31-mile trip, which is not that big of a deal normally to hike about 15 miles uh, and then another 15 miles, get leave and get on. Well, we soon realized that this trail was much more difficult than I had previously imagined. And long story short, we had to, I knew, I figured out that I, I was not going to, it was going to take more than two days, and I didn't have more than two days because I was going to be in a wedding, and I needed to be back in Columbia for my sister's wedding. If there's anything I can't miss other than my own wedding, it would be my, my sister's wedding. So we had to bail on the trip and that was my first experience hitchhiking. And I don't, it's my first, it's not my only. Uh, obviously if I didn't finish the trail four times, I probably had to hitchhike a couple more times. Uh, but I'm not gonna tell you the whole, it's a really funny hitchhiking story. Obviously we made it out okay. And our last pickup, two people had to pick us up the last one that picked us up had, it was a conversion van uh, with a driver who looked just like Jerry Garcia. If you know who Jerry Garcia was, uh, he looked just like, prom- I promise you, it, it might have been Jerry Garcia just hiding in the woods of North Carolina. And his wife, and whose wife worked for the forestry department or something, I think, but they had just gone to Pizza Hut in Brevard. And so they had a, like a large pizza and all of this Pepsi and they invited us and they, we sat in the back seat, me and my buddy that were hitchhiking, eating pizza and drinking Pepsi as they drove us to our car. It's like, this is the way to hike. Like, I love this. Um, but the, I still, there's still a longing in me to finish the race, to finish the trail, so to speak. I've, I've made it halfway, 
that, not on that occasion, but on another occasion, uh, I've made it that far, and I, I really want to one day finish it. I have a, maybe a need for perseverance, and that illustration is, I hope, helpful, because you have need for perseverance. I have need for perseverance on a greater and more significant race. And it's very, it, it's very easy to start, but it matters more how you finish. It's very easy how you start, but it matters more how you finish. The writer of Hebrews, or the preacher of Hebrews, is writing to a beleaguered people who has suffered. They are predominantly Jewish Christians uh, that, are, that have come to faith in Jesus Christ, but they have been suffering because of their allegiance and connection to the Lord Jesus. And so he is coming to them in, in really a large chunk of the book of Hebrews to encourage them and to warn them about the danger of falling away. And so this is that sermon to warn you of the danger of falling away. And this might turn into a couple sermons, so beware. Our, our text begins in verse 1 about the summoning of the holy brethren or the brothers and sisters. This is the, the body of the church. Therefore, Holy brethren, holy brothers and sisters, those who are marked by faith in the Lord Jesus, you are partakers in a heavenly calling, that you are believers because of what God has called you unto in the gospel. And he tells us, this is the first headliner. If you're going to run the race, if you're going to finish well, finish in the faith, you must consider the Lord Jesus. You must consider Him. You must create a focus and an attention upon Christ that is above all else. That seems relatively straightforward, right? We should say that's the sermon of the day. Look to Jesus. Look to Jesus who the apostle and high priest of our confession. This is the only place in the whole Bible that Jesus is called an apostle. And he is not an apostle like the 12 apostles, uh, in the sense that they're people and he's sent from God. But apostle, all apostle means is the, the sent one. That Jesus is the one sent by God from God to save and to rescue. That his sentness is a permanent mark upon him. That he, his sentness, his apostleness, his missionariness as we're making up words that this marks Jesus for all of eternity because his sentness shows up as his incarnation that he is the apostle because he is the eternal second person of the trinity who takes on a human flesh human nature to live a perfect life to pay the debt for us and that throughout the book of Revelation, they're describing the end. Jesus remains incarnate in the flesh. He never sheds his flesh. Because he is the lamb who stands as the one who has been slain. That we will rejoice and take shelter under the apostle Jesus' wounds. And in his sentness, he accomplishes redemption and functions as our high priest. Now the high priestliness of Christ t- 
takes up a large chunk of what Hebrews is. Trying to assert that Jesus is greater than angels and that He's greater than Moses and He's greater than the temple and He's greater than all these things that in Christ He is our high priest who has suffered for us, who knows what it is to be weak with us. To consider the Lord Jesus, you must know how the Bible describes Him. To consider the Lord Jesus, He must, must be much more than simply a catchphrase that runs across the ticker of your brain. You are not allowed to supply your own definition to the Lord Jesus. To consider the Lord Jesus so that you may finish the race means that you have to abandon all of the false Christs that He warned us about. The false deliverers and the false gospels. The false definitions of, my Jesus would never do that. Well, have we seen that in His Word? My Jesus is the one who sat outside of the temple in Jerusalem and He was so irate righteously that he, He wove, weaved? He made a whip. He took strands of leather and he wetted them together. And that took some time before he went and whipped in the temple to clear out the money changers. Is that description included in your Jesus who is meek and mild? Because he is meek and mild, but he is also the Lord of Lords and the King of Kings who will return with a double-edged sword coming out of his mouth and it will be imprinted upon him that he is the Lord of Lords and the King of Kings and all authority in heaven and earth has been given to him. That means that every authority that is present now will have to give an account to him. We, if we're going to consider Jesus the apostle and high priest of our confession, our confession of faith, this declaration of what we believe, then our declaration must be supplied by what the Bible describes Jesus as being. We must forsake worldly definitions. Too often we've seen Jesus and His memory, if you will, His definition, His description molded and mutated according to the winds of the cultural age. Turning Jesus into something that He is not, was not, nor will ever be. Because it seems to yield a lot of credence to movements and ideas if we can corrupt Jesus' definition to be in our camp. Surely Jesus would do this, and He would believe this. He would vote this political way, whether it's Republican or Democrat or Libertarian or Whigs, if we bring those back. If we attempt to bring out Jesus, to make Him something that the Bible does not describe Him as being, you know what we've become? It's a simple Bible word. It's called idolatry. See, the people of Israel, because in, that are described here in Hebrews chapter 3, the people of Israel are, remember they were delivered from Egypt? They were brought through what sea? Red Sea. Was it muddy ground? Dry ground. They came through dry ground. They were delivered. It was a des- description later. Paul uses that as a, as a descriptor of baptism later. That they were brought through into the wilderness. 
And what did they do in the wilderness at Mount Sinai? When Moses is up there, he's he's speaking to God face to face. He's receiving this communication from God for his people. And you know what the people of Israel did? They made a calf. What did they call the calf? They didn't call it Molech or Baal or Kamosh or, or Dagon. They called it Yahweh. They made a God and said, look at the Lord who has delivered us. The word was right, but they had crafted an image. And while we might not make cast metal idols, we certainly make imaginative idols. This is a slight soapbox, so I need to get off of it so we get to where we're going. But we cannot supply the information. We must receive the information. Our thoughts and whims, our thinking must be molded according to the revelation of God in His Word. So Jesus has said to consider Him that He is the the one who is the Lord over the house, that Moses labored in the house, and that we are that house if we, verse 6, if we hold fast our confidence and the boast of our hope firm until the end. Did you notice that Jesus is over the house, Moses is in the house, but there's one house. There's one house because there's one people. One house, one people. Therefore, the example of the people of Israel in the wilderness applies to us. What happened to them ought to be a warning to us today. Okay? We, 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 we jumped over a lot of controversies there. If you're not aware of them, that's good. If you are, just put them in your back pocket. We can talk about them later. But one house, one people, therefore, their example is for us. And so the writer of Hebrews takes this passage in 7 through 11, which is a quotation from Psalm 95, 7 through 11, which is interesting. I think it's 7 through 11 in 95. And he applies it, says, look at, the, here's the warning that the psalmist David gave about the people who were in the wilderness. So if you're unfamiliar with the history of Israel, I'm going to give you like a 30 second overview. Not really, that's not, that's not, not an overview. But as I said, the people of Israel were enslaved in Egypt. They were delivered, they were redeemed out of Egypt's grip through the Red Sea on dry ground brought into the wilderness where they rebelled against God. They were in the position of greatest dependence upon God and it was in the greatest the position of greatest dependence that they rebelled the greatest. That they were in, as the, this quotation from Psalm 95 describes it, they were in a trial. They were in a test. See, the trial and the test that the Lord brought along reveals what is truly there. And dear ones, if I'm going to go straight to the point... The the test that the people of Israel endured in the wilderness winnowed away those who were still stuck in Egypt and had never really bought allegiance, brought into allegiance to Yahweh, the living God. And the moment of trial that the church in the West or the church in America now faces is winnowing away the chaff so that the, the seed, the kernel may stand. Do you understand what I'm saying? Probably not yet. I'm going to work on it. If you have been paying attention for the last 
15, 20, 30, 40, 50 years, the cultural shifts that have happened in America and in, in, in the West have been nothing short of revolutionary. And what has transpired really in the last 10 or 15 years is absolutely unprecedented in history. So much as I know history. And it has brought us to the precipice of very different and difficult days for us. It bears no social capital to be counted a Christian any longer. It does not help your business. It does not help your network of relationships, but it will cost you something. And when following Jesus begins to cost you something, and possibly everything, then those who are not really believers, maybe have professed Christ, maybe even have passed through the waters of baptism at a confession of faith, those who have never really made that faith their own, will say that cost is too much to bear. And the danger is that, as verse 6 says, but Christ was faithful as a son over his house, whose house we are, that we would be the household of God, the household of faith, the body of, of Christ, the family of God. But only notice who's in the house. If we hold fast our confidence and boast of our hope, Firm until the end. What happened to the generation of the Israelites in the wilderness is that they did not. They had the hope that God was bringing them to the promised land. The promise that was given to their ancestor Abraham 400 plus years before. The promise that was given to Abraham and reiterated to Isaac and reiterated to Jacob who became Israel who was the father of the twelve tribes who said, you will receive what God has promised. And yet when they came out of Egypt, they were murmuring and complaining that they would rather be safe and warm and full in slavery than to follow where the Lord was leading them. They did not hold fast their confidence. They did not hold fast their boast until the end. And dear one, if you do not hold fast your confidence and boast to the end, you cannot claim to have the Lord Jesus, nor can you have ever claimed to truly been born again. Amen. Sorry, not sorry, it's just I've been off two weeks and so it's kind of sharp. Maybe I need a scalpel today and I only brought my sledgehammer. So here we are. But we need to take the stock. Just examining our own lives, but also examining our church and examining where we are and say, if you hear His voice today, but, but before I get that, uh, verse, verse 7, to, therefore, just as the Holy Spirit says, what is the Bible saying about itself there? Who is the primary author of Scripture? God! The Holy Spirit says. He doesn't say David says, which would be true. He doesn't say the psalmist says, which would be true. But the the human writers of Scripture are secondary authors, with God being the primary author. So what does the Holy Spirit say? Today, if you hear His voice, and this is an extended section. I didn't read through chapter 4, but the end of chapter 4 describes how we hear the voice of God today. 
The Holy Spirit testifies in Psalm 95, and the Holy Spirit is testifying to you right now in Hebrews chapter 3. Chapter 4, verse 12, For the Word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing as far as the division of soul and spirit, of both joints and marrow, able to judge the thoughts and intentions of the heart. And there is no creature hidden from His sight, but all things are open and laid bare to the eyes of Him with whom we have to do, or with Him to whom we will have to give an account. You're thinking, when have I heard the voice of God? You stood up and you heard it. And you have a choice right now to decide which, what, what will you do with it. The people of Israel, it says, today if you hear His voice, you have heard His voice. What did they, they do? Do not harden your heart as when they provoked me. They hardened their heart. They pursued unbelief rather than faith. And you have the same choice today. Every time you hear the Word of God read or preached, you have an opportunity to move towards faith or towards unbelief. But the one thing you cannot remain is the same. There's no neutrality here. You can't weigh out these things. Either you're going to take God at His Word because it is a reasonable thing to do, because He is speaking in His Word, or you will refuse Him. And you will continue in unbelief. You cannot muddle in the middle. At least for any extended amount of time. Because muddling in the middle sinks you towards unbelief. It will slide you in that direction. Do not harden your heart as when they provoked me in the day of trial. The trial revealed the true character of who they are. And the trial will do the same for you. If the Lord wills, and it becomes much more difficult to be a Christian in America, the trial will tell. The trial will tell who will cling to the rugged cross of Christ and who will abandon the ship. Who will jump out to the applause of the culture and crowd? Or who will stand steady, believing that the Lord is going to bring us Deliverance. And the Lord is going to bring us home. The fathers tried the Lord. They saw His works for 40 years. And before you discount their example, before you say they were, they were knuckleheads in the wilderness, which they were. So were we. But which they were. Before you discount it, consider what they saw. They saw and they heard. Let's just let's shelve the the whole Red Sea thing for a second and just consider what they saw and heard in Egypt. They saw God raise up a nobody out of the wilderness named Moses, this old man who had been tending sheep, who said he had been sent by the Lord to deliver them and to bring them out of slavery. And by mighty acts of God that God would unfurl the hand of Pharaoh that was so dominant upon the people of Israel. So they saw and they heard swarms of flies and torrents of hail. They saw livestock die, water turned into blood and many, many other 
plagues. And then they finally heard the cries of the weeping people of Egypt who have lost their firstborn while the people of Israel took shelter under the blood of the Passover lamb on the lintel of the door. Then they were delivered out at plundering the people of Egypt with silver and gold in their pockets. They came to the Red Sea and they still panicked and they saw the waters heaped up on both sides as great liquid mountains restrained by the powerful hand of God. They walked through on miraculously dry ground and were brought into the wilderness and they saw in their rearview mirror the world's superpower of the day swallowed up in the torrent. And then they, were, they received water from the rock and they received manna and they received quail. They saw these things for decades, 40 years. What have we seen? I haven't seen anything like that. But I've heard. I've heard the old, old story. And I have received what Christ has done to me. I know where I was. And I know where I am. And I know where I'm going. Because of what Christ has done. Dear ones, do not discount this warning That if those people can go astray, if they can fall, take heed that you do not abandon your confidence in the Lord Jesus. This isn't a question about losing salvation and all that sort of jazz. The Lord preserves His people, but the Lord preserves His people by means of faithful perseverance. God will keep His saints. He will preserve His saints. Psalm 37, that was in our reading recently. But He preserves them by faithful perseverance. God will preserve you by faithful perseverance. We rest in the omnipotent hand of God. What did Jesus say? He's the good shepherd in John chapter 10. What did he say after that? No one, no one can snatch my sheep from my hand. No one can snatch us from God's hand. You are secure because of what Christ has done. But you must be confident that Christ has done it. And that you have considered who Jesus is, who you are, that you've trusted in Him, that you're clinging to Him. It is dependent upon your, His grace, but His grace shows up in your life by you refusing to let go. That we cling and we follow and we labor and we suffer. We yield to Him because of His grace that is active in us. The danger is unbelief. Hardened hearts look back with longing. They looked back to Egypt with longing. And they looked forward with fear. Faith looks back with gratitude and forward with hope. Hardened hearts of unbelief look back with longing. And they look forward with fear. Faithful, redeemed hearts look back with gratitude. And they look forward with hope. Which will you be?
Will we be a people who longs for yesteryear and is fretful about the headlines of tomorrow? Fretful about what will happen with the church tomorrow and our nation tomorrow? Or will we look back and say, thank you, God, for all that you have done? And we thank you for what you're going to do. For we have a sure and steady hope, a living hope that is before us, church. The days might grow evil, for they are. It might, the storm might rise, persecutions might come, difficulties might come. But Jesus is worth it, and he is able. Beware of unbelief. Cling to Christ in faith. Let's pray. Father, we thank you. And we ask at God that if there are any here who are muddling in the middle where they feel like, would you give them a sure and steady confidence that Christ is the Son of God? And that whoever comes to him will not be ashamed and will in fact be saved. If there are some who hear my voice now who have never trusted in the Lord Jesus, God, would they begin to see the beauty of the wounds of Christ, the wonder of the empty tomb, and the sureness of the promise that he is coming back to judge the quick and the dead. Would you convict them of their own sin, their own unbelief that has rebelled against their God? And would you awaken them by your grace to your love that they might leave the shackles of sin and darkness behind and step into the light of Christ and trust Him today. For your people, for your Christians in this room, who look at a world gone mad. God, we don't understand. We don't control it. But we trust you. And we ask that you would build in us hearts that are faithful today. Today, would you make us faithful? Today, would you increase our faith? Would you increase our confidence and our boasting and our rejoicing in Jesus? That a faithful heart cast upon Christ is indomitable in these dark and evil days. So make your people sure. Make them steady. And strengthen us, Lord, that we might glorify you in every area of life. Every relationship, you would be exalted as we are your faithful people, shining as lights in this corrupt generation. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.